Welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. What you're about to hear was originally recorded and broadcast for Pythagoras' Trousers, a Radio Cardiff science show and podcast. You can hear the full show and listen to past episodes at pythagoras-trousers.co.uk. Every year, Cambridge University organises Cambridge Science Festival at about this time of year. The Institute of Astronomy organises an open afternoon with all sorts of displays about research going on there and activities for children. Over a thousand people attended this year and I helped some of my colleagues in Cambridge display material about the Planck satellite. Planck is looking at the cosmic microwave background, the afterglow of the Big Bang. I started off by finding out from Mark Ashdown what Planck and the cosmic microwave background it's observing are all about. The cosmic microwave background is the oldest light that we can see in the universe. It gives us a snapshot of the universe when it was very, very young. To give you an idea, if it was a person that's 10 years old, it would be like having a snapshot of them when they were one hour old. It gives you some idea of the the timescales involved. If we try to go back any further, see back any further, we can't because the universe wasn't transparent at that point. Before, it was a soup of uh, light and matter. And uh, at some point, the matter combined to form hydrogen atoms and the the light was emitted. And we see that light nowadays as the cosmic microwave background. The universe has expanded so much in the meantime that it's been, the the waves have been stretched out. So instead of being visible light, we see them in in radio waves or microwaves in this case. And this really is the afterglow of the Big Bang. It gives us a lot of hints about what the universe is is made of and how it's evolved. Because we see the sky with microwave eyes, we'd actually see it to be very, very uniform. We look at the same in all directions. On top of that flat background, there are tiny, tiny ripples. So they're, they're, they're the seeds of the structures that we see nowadays in the universe, of galaxies, clusters of galaxies, stars and so on, planets. The ripples are very small at this time, so we're seeing tiny variations. What we actually measure is the temperature of the cosmic microwave. We see tiny variations in the temperature, and they're one part in 100,000, so they're very, very small. But the things that are slightly uh, hotter... Are the are go on to form the voids between galaxies and things that are slightly colder go on to form galaxies and stars and so on. So we're seeing the really the, the start of the formation of, of all the structures we see in the in the universe around us today. Well, uh, we look forward to the results uh, from Planck, and I think I'm going to wander around now and uh, see what else is going on here. So Mark Ashdown, uh, thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. Well, wandering around, I've just come to a, a postcard stall. Behind the postcard stall is Professor Jerry Gilmore. Now, now, Jerry, you're involved with the Gaia project, and I can see a stand down there all about Gaia. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, Gaia is the billion star surveyor. It's the, it was launched just before Christmas last year. It's in orbit, being tested out as we speak today. Uh, <clears throat> what we're doing is explaining what Gaia is, how it works, and why it is the most precise satellite ever built to measure for the first time how far away the stars really are. And we do that by measuring parallax. You can do this yourself at home, hold your arm out in front of your face with your thumb up, close one eye then the other, you'll see your thumb seeming to jump from side to side compared to the background stars. Well Gaia does that, except it does it a little more accurately. In fact Gaia is sufficiently accurate that it can tell the difference between the left hand side and the right hand side of a human hair in Paris as seen from Cambridge. Wow. And it's going to do this for a billion stars, and every star is going to measure about 100 times. And so it'll tell us how far away the stars are for the first time ever, and how they're moving for the first time ever. And that'll allow us to, to, to know not only what the Milky Way is like, 
and how much it weighs. So we're also going to be able to tell you about the dark matter that holds the Milky Way together. Now, now Gaia is already in space. It launched at the end of last year. Is, uh, and I guess it's, it's preparing to start its full set of measurements. Right? How, how's everything going so far? That's right, yeah. Gaia's out at L2, same place that Planck used to be before it uh, retired. Uh, it's, uh, it's going pretty well, actually. All of the really, really sensitive systems have been turned on and checked. So the billion-pixel camera, this is a billion-pixel camera, the biggest camera ever built. It's up there and working really nicely. The propulsion system is exquisite. Gaia weighs a couple of tons, but everything about Gaia is so precise. It is propelled by shooting out one millionth of a gram of nitrogen in little spots. And that, all that stuff, the computers, the communications, they're all working really well. The mirrors look pretty good too. It'll be another month before we finish turning stuff on and testing it out, but it's looking very promising so far. Well, I can see there's uh, people browsing the postcards already, so I'll let you go back to selling your wares. Uh, Jerry, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Now, what's in front of me is a black sheet with a hole in the middle and some pennies rolling around, so hopefully I can find out what's going on here. Erin, I think, is uh, on duty explaining this to people. So we're having kids, they're rolling these coins into the black hole, and, and we want to show them what we're, what we're actually studying. So instead of coins falling into a, a, a hole, actually we're looking at gas that's orbiting around these distant black holes. And they orbit around, and they're, they're getting pulled in by the, the gravitational pull of the black hole. And once they fall into this, this cup that we've got at the bottom, that's as if the, the, the gas is falling into the black hole. And, and once that, that gas falls into the black hole, we'll never see it again. And so what we're doing at the Institute of Astronomy is we're studying this gas. We're looking at the... The, the gas gets very hot as it orbits around the black hole, and it gets so hot that it, it radiates light. And that light we see, it's very high-energy light, and we see it as, as X-ray light. So we use telescopes to look at the gas as it's about to fall into the black hole. Edward, age 8, is busy rolling uh, pennies into the uh, black hole. How are you getting on so far? got most of them in. Yeah. You've got most of them in. Excellent. So they've all fallen in. Well, that's yeah. all good. And, and what are you finding when you roll them? They, they, they sometimes go into different shapes, and and and, and they gradually get closer into the into the centre of the black hole. Excellent. So they all end up in there, but sometimes they go round a few times before they fall in. Yeah. Are you enjoying the uh, the science festival so far? Yeah. What have you seen so far? Have you just arrived? Um, been to the physics laboratory, yeah. haven't we? And we've been to the Institute of Manufacturing. Yeah. We learned about light, didn't we? Yeah, we learned about light. What did you find out about light when you were there? Um, how the light gets twisted. I've come to something that's all about listening to sounds in stars. And I can see Christina's holding a straw, and I just heard blowing down it. So, so how does blowing down a straw link to stars? Okay, so we've got some uh, slinkies over there in the corner that are showing us one-dimensional standing waves. And then when we blow in the straw and we create vibrations at the top, there's a 2D standing wave in the pipe which creates the sound in the air. Then in the space, we've got these spherical stars which we can compress and we can cause standing waves to go three-dimensionally through the whole surface. So we take those signals and transpose them up to audible frequencies as well. Okay, so we can go and listen to the sounds yeah. and stars. Give us a blow on the, uh, on the, the straw oboe then. <laughs> beautiful sound, beautiful sound. I'll let you get back to uh, making straw oboes for other people. Thank you very much. 
so I'm now chatting to Carolyn Crawford, who's been coordinating a lot of the activities here at the Institute of Astronomy for today. Uh, we're standing looking from a balcony down over a craft area, and there's lots of children drawing and cutting and sticking and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot going on here. Yes, well, we're trying to cater for all ages, so you're right. We've got lots of things for, for kids. We've got constellation making, and they're making origami stars as well. Um, but we've also got lots of displays for their adults and for the parents that come along with the children. That's the general idea. And a, and a whole range of astronomy as well, across the, across the spectrum. Yeah, we try and represent all the astronomy that's done here at the Institute. So we've got the X-ray group who've got their model black hole, and they're explaining about how X-ray telescopes are different from ordinary optical telescopes. Down below us, we're in the, the balcony of the Cavley building, and below us they're doing some experiments about fluids in space. And so showing on a small scale in a water tank the kind of effects that we see in the nebulae out in deep space. Um, elsewhere, we've got spectroscopy demonstrations about transits with exoplanets and even resonances with stars, talking about astroseismology. So just trying to represent a, a, a huge spectrum of what's available in astronomical research here at Cambridge. I've come into the craft area and I'm joined by Princess Andromeda and two of her subjects. Tell me your real names first. I'm Trisha. I'm Andromeda. <laughs> I'm Amy. Excellent. Well, Andromeda, uh, tell us what's, what's going on in this room. Well, this is our constellation room where people can learn a little bit more about constellations and how they translate throughout different cultures. And we can also give kids an opportunity to build their own constellations if they want to, using hole punches and sticky stars. And in about three minutes, I'm going to tell them a little bit about the myth of Andromeda and Perseus and a little bit more about constellations just in the next room. Is it going down well with the children? It's going down well with the students and the children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they love it. We've got a full room already. and They're all making stars and constellations ranging from Orion, the hunter, to the little bear the great bear we've got stickers galore it's fantastic excellent well it looks like everyone's having a great time so I'll let you get back to your constellation making and, and your story time thank you We've heard about the cosmic microwave background being the afterglow of the Big Bang. I've snuck away from the, uh, the hubbub of Cambridge Science Festival to, uh, to speak to Stephen Grattan, someone who works here in Cambridge on the Planck satellite and cosmic microwave background stuff. So Stephen, there's lots more we can tell from the cosmic microwave background. And in fact, we had some new results earlier this week, didn't we? That's right, yes. Uh, very exciting new results uh, from the BICEP uh, telescope. And they've been basically looking at the polarisation of the cosmic microwave background. So that's like the orientation of the light. That's right. So light doesn't only have an intensity, it also has like an orientation associated with it. And um, BICEP have been, out, have been able to measure how the orientation changes uh, as they look over, uh, over a patch of the sky in great detail. Okay, and um, why in particular are they looking at this, this polarisation pattern? You can get all sorts of polarisation uh, signals um, from various uh, astrophysical processes, um, but it's very hard to get um, one of it, like a special large-scale like distortion of the polarisation pattern. And we think that can only basically come about um, from, from the very early universe. And we're talking very, very early. Very early, like so early... I can't even think how many billion billionths. It's, a, it's something like a millionth of a billionth of a trillionth of a second, I think. It's I'll about, take your right? word yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can only get these swirly patterns in, in this polarization of the cosmic microwave background if the universe had large scale gravitational wave fluctuations in it. And the only way we know to make these is uh, the idea of inflation. So we need a high energy inflation model. So this result is very exciting because, uh, you know, assuming it pans out, it's basically direct evidence uh, as, uh, that the universe had a high energy 
exponentially expanding phase. Uh, and so that's what inflation is, this, this huge expansion at very early that's time. That's right. So in- inflation is a theory. We can't just play with the stuff, the inflaton, the stuff of inflation in the lab. So it's, it's all inference based on the cosmic microwave background and, and other things. So the universe underwent a period of uh, what's basically almost exponential expansion. So it basically kept doubling, doubling and doubling. And then this really helps to explain a number of puzzles about why the universe is the, the way it is. But the, the, this expansion, it could have happened at like varying energy scales. So the Planck satellite has, has done some, uh, some fantastic observations of the cosmic microwave background over the full sky, and it sees results that are consistent with inflation. Um, but it didn't really sensitively measure this polarisation pattern in the same way that BICEP has. And because of that, like a lot of different inflation models... Um, would, would fit the Planck data alone. But the, the bicep results are only consistent uh, if this inflation was of a very high energy type. And still leaves plenty of, unque- of interesting questions and answers like, did the high energy inflation, how did the high energy inflation get going? Is it still going, going on in other parts of the universe? So then could there even be other universes uh, like around which aren't in this high energy inflation phase? And so there's a lots of exciting cosmological uh, questions, but we are beginning to at least constrain our speculations about what the early universe um, was like. Well, it's certainly very exciting times in cosmology, and hope there's a lot more exciting results to come. Uh, Stephen, thanks very much. Thank you. I'm joined now by George of Stathia, who's the, the lead UK scientist in the, the Planck mission. And uh, George, can you tell us a little bit about what Planck's got to offer to the B-mode problem we've just been hearing about? Well, let, let me start by saying that, you know, I was really shocked at the result from BICEP because we can also detect gra- gravitational waves just by looking at the temperature fluctuations, which we had done. And we published a, a, an upper limit on the gravitational wave contribution uh, a year ago, which is actually lower than the detection from BICEP. Um, so I was really surprised at the high amplitude that the BICEP group claimed as a direct detection using polarisation data, which we didn't use, with Planck. Um, but we looked at their papers carefully. You know, These are very, very good experimentalists, and I think that their result is right. Um, and so there seems to be a conflict between the Planck temperature results and uh, the BICEP results. Um, I think that this is a a real conflict. And so in addition to the very exciting discovery of gravitational waves from, you know, know, 10 to the minus 35 seconds after the Big Bang announced by BICEP, I think there's additional new physics that explains, uh, that resolves this tension between the results from Planck and BICEP. So so that, that, that I think is going to be you know, in the, the short term, uh, the development of this subject is going to be, you know, what further information can we extract from Planck? We can also measure the gravitational waves directly in the way that the BICEP group have done. Um, and we have a lot of other information on polarisation, um, on uh, large scales covering the whole sky, which the BICEP group and other experiments don't, you know, don't... don't uh, uh, you know, can't study. 
So there's unique information on Planck. What seems to be going on is that the uh, universe um, on small scales, and by small scales I mean uh, say a tenth the size of the observable universe, fit simple models of inflation in the early universe and they fit them absolutely beautifully to extremely high precision. But there seems to be something funny going on on the very largest scales. And, you know, it's so the question is, you know, can we learn more about what, you know, why there's tension between small and large scales? And I think that there's a good chance that that tension is linked to this difficulty of matching the Planck temperature results to the bicep results. So I think it's a very, very exciting time. You know, there's more new new physics uh, that um, I think we uh, um, might well be able to uncover in the next few months. And I guess I know in the in the Planck temperature results that were put out last year, there are still some remaining anomalies, which might be statistical flukes, um, but they could say that there's something odd going on um, with the, the the sky maps. I mean, is it possible that these are all related to new physics? Yeah, it it, it is, and. Um, I mean, what, what I said at the Planck press conference a year ago about um, these anomalies on large scales was that, you know, even, you know, the most diehard inflationary theorist would have to admit that the universe looks a bit odd on the large scales. The question is how odd? And the, the um, you know, it's difficult to put a number, a, an actual probability. Um, but I think the indicator, I mean, you know, to say that it, you know, it's a 1 in 20 chance is a probably a pretty reasonable estimate. So the universe is sort of odd at the 1 in 20 level. So that, that's not enough to reject a theory. Um, and so you know, what, what has happened you know, for, for a long time is that people have you know, said, well, you know, the universe looks a bit odd on the large scales, uh, but it's a statistical fluke. So, or it, but it could be new physics, and that's the problem. The data, you know, because we only see one example of our universe. How do you improve the statistical significance of stuff that you see on the large scale? Because you can't do statistics on you, you one object. You can't do statistics on one object. So we've only got one universe to play with. So, um, the way that you can make progress is if for example a theorist came up with a really nice theoretical model that linked together different anomalies that are each in themselves not terribly statistically significant but now you have a theory which explains you know a number of phenomena unfortunately we don't have a theory like that you can make theoretical models that explain the anomalies, but they're all incredibly ugly and involve, you know, bells and whistles and so on. And so, so we haven't got to the stage where, you know, there's a compelling theoretical explanation that links together the phenomena. The, the other way is to use something else. Okay. We've got very, very detailed maps and studied the large scales in temperature but not in polarisation. And that's new information. That's where Planck is unique. 
and that's where I think that we might, uh, uh, by looking at the polarization maps, uncover um, you know more statistical evidence for anomalies. And you talk about a new physics and a new theory. This this kind of takes me back to, to where inflation came from. Inflation was a theory that explained weird things about the universe, how it was the same in all the it, same all over the sky and this kind of stuff. But it didn't make a well, it made firm predictions we couldn't test until we had these particularly these B mode predictions that we can now test. And I guess if there's a new theory, that's what it's got to do, right? It's got to not only match all the observations we see, but make a prediction we can go and test somewhere. Right, and the bicep results are, are very, very significant because the gravitational wave amplitude that that they have, you know, claimed to see, which I think they present a very good case, is real, um, is a very high amplitude, and that's not, you know, what a lot of you know theorists would, I think is surprised that the amplitude is so high. Um, but it's a result of very, very deep significance because it tells us the energy scale of inflation and it's only uh, a hundredth of the energy scale of uh, where quantum gravity becomes important. And the, the, But what I think is even more significant is that because the amplitude of this gravitational wave contribution is so high, it tells us that, the, that we have sensitivity to quantum gravity. So we need a theory of quantum gravity to explain, you know, the, these observations. Our best candidate is string theory, for a, you know, a theory that makes gravity compatible with quantum mechanics. But we don't understand string theory very well, and we understand uh, string theory even less in a cosmological context where the background geometry is changing. So, um, so I think, you know, the, we're, 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 you know, moving into a new era of theory. You can't ignore quantum gravity anymore. We're seeing I- experimentally phenomena that require quantum gravity to explain them. And so it's, an, it's a new regime. And, now, and I think we know this now, you know, pretty, pretty definitely. So, um, so, you know, hopefully it'll be a stimulus to theorists to, uh, you know, look um, at cosmological predictions from quantum gravity. Very, very difficult problem to do. Um, and that we might, um, you know, uncover some, you know, hopefully, if we can develop a theory, uh, then um, we can link together these different phenomena that we see and in some natural way. So the, the last 10, 20 years, 15, 20 years have been called the era of precision cosmology because our cosmology measurements have been getting more and more precise. So it sounds like maybe we're going beyond precision cosmology and into the era of quantum gravitational cosmology, which is, uh, I guess, quite an exciting uh, prospect. I, I mean, I've never bought this. You know, it's, so, um, okay, so... The, you know, there are people who've been thinking along the lines that we're learning, you know, we're making these precision measurements, we're, you know, we know that there's dark matter, we know how much dark matter there is, there's dark energy, and so on, and that, uh, you know, it seems as though, you know, cosmology may be coming to an end, you know, that we understand, you know, that 
the structure came from inflation and so on and so on. I, I've never bought that argument that the subject is, you know, is coming to some sort of, some sort of end. Um, the, the, you know, the fact that um, we don't know what the dark matter is, we don't know what dark energy is, and that's ninety-five percent of the content of the universe. Um, you know, and yet we ha- we have no understanding of you know the dominant constituents of the universe. The fact that um, you know the uh, structure in the universe might have come from inflation, but we know nothing about the dynamics. Or well, we do know something now about the the dynamics, but we don't have a, a good physics explanation of inflation. Um, so, so you know the subject is. Uh, you know, with so many uncertainties, there's always the potential for revolutionary changes, and we're going through such a period now. And I think that this is just, you know, the start of a bandwagon effect where uh, a number of important problems are going to to be resolved. And I think it's, this could happen in the next few months. So it's an unusually exciting time. It certainly does sound like exciting times uh, in cosmology. Uh, George, thanks very much. Well, if all this talk of big bangs and inflation is a little heady, then we can look now at what's in the sky over the coming month. I'm joined again by Hugh Lang. And Hugh, over the previous months, we've had a lot of planets on show, but that time is slowly drawing to a close. They are fading now, but if you look in the morning, Venus is still quite bright. In fact, it's intensely bright, but it's starting to move towards the sun now, so we will start to lose it. We've had Jupiter on show for a good few months, but it's starting to fade. That's right. Jupiter was in opposition at the beginning of the year, but now it's starting to fade. It's still high in the sky at sunset, but of course it's now moving towards the west. It's still worth looking at it with a telescope, however. Don't give up on it just yet. Saturn's coming into view, but it's not at its best yet. That's right. It, it's never really good this year. It's quite low in the in the sky, but it's still worth looking at. But one for later in the year. That's right. But the real star of the show, no pun intended, is the planet Mars. That's right. Mars is reaching opposition now, so it's a really bright, fiery red object in the mid-evening sky. Easy to find if you look for the uh, plough and follow the handle along uh, with a curve towards Arcturus and then carry on that curve towards Spica in Virgo. Mars is in Virgo, not too far away from Spica. An opposition means it's its closest point to the Earth in its orbit and that means it's its brightest and its biggest. Its largest, that's right. So again, it's the best time to look at it with a telescope and you will make out features with a, with a mediocre telescope, maybe a 3-4 three, three, inch refractor or maybe a 6 inch reflector. Easily see the polar cap and some of the uh, more obvious uh, distinguishing features on the surface like Certus Major, Arcadia, Planet Earth, they're all there. Uh, you might even see a dust storm and you might even see fog patches. It's amazing what you can look at, at on that planet if you look long enough. And it's going to be around for a few months. Now is clearly the best time to observe it. Now there's one last thing for the really keen observers. This is the time of year if you're willing to stay up all night to try the Messier Marathon. That's right. All 110 objects are in the sky. It's still quite a tight fit, but you can actually do it. A lot of people ask me why can't you do it in the longer winter nights. It's simply because the Coma Virgo group and the Sagittarius core are springtime objects. You have to be observing them at this time of the year. So this is the time of year when they're all above the horizon That's at some right. point in the night, but you do have to uh, observe from dusk until dawn oh together. yes and it's a it's a quite a tight fit <laughs> well if you have a telescope and you do want to try the messier marathon uh good luck and enjoy those sleepless nights but for people without telescopes the glorious sight of mars and jupiter in the early evening is uh, plenty to be getting along with 